Are you going to turn away or hold on? That's our subject today, study number seven and Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's Home Bible Studies in Hebrews um, from the Culloden Christian Assembly. And so we're, we're coming into this section from Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 right the way through to 6 verse 20. So study number 7 in the, in the book of Hebrews. I hope you'll join me uh, and enjoy it with me as we go through this very solemn and serious and high stakes section of God's word. Thank you. I'm Andrew the host and what we want to do before we do anything else is just commend this message to the Lord. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would bless us, help us as we look into your word together. In the Lord's name, amen. Okay, study number seven, turning away or holding on. What I'm going to do before we look at this study in any kind of detail is I'm going to read the end of chapter five. Chapter 5, from verse number 11 to verse number 14, and I'm reading in the New King James Version. Now you'll remember where we've got to. The writer of the Hebrews has emphasised how wonderful Christ is in so many different ways. He's emphasised that he's greater than the prophets in the first little section. The, the prophets all spoke and they, they brought a message and it was uh, little bits of the jigsaw that they were all trying to put together and understand. And then Christ came. Then the Son came. And the message was the Son. And the messenger was the Son. And, and he is so absolutely wonderful. And you read the early uh, bits about the one who is the very brightness of the glory of God. And the express image of his person. And so we think of one who is greater than the prophets of old. And then, of course, we, we thought about how important angels were in, in the whole Jewish psyche. And we discovered that he's greater than angels. He's greater than angels in, in his rank now. He's greater than angels because he's the son. He's greater than angels even in his, his connection to the sons of men. The whole salvation connection chapter 2 is greater than angels. And of course in the middle of all that we find out that the Lord Jesus is not only truly divine but he's perfectly human. Chapter 1 is emphasizing his deity. Chapter 2 his humanity. And then of course if that's not enough the writer starts to unpack the fact that he is a greater apostle if you like sent one than Moses. And he's able to bring us into the land in a way Joshua can't. And all these great Old Testament heroes are being contrasted with the one who is the anti-typical hero. The one who is the Lord Jesus, the son of the living God. And, and why is that happening? Well, I tried to illustrate this. If you get the handout, um, it should be attached to the, the podcast unless you're on iTunes if you want to go to the other um, connection for the podcast, um, if you get a handout or else send a wee link to me and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get it to you. Um, and you, you go to the back of the, the, the handout, you'll find a little diagram that I've put, the tensions of Hebrews. And what I've done is I've drawn a number of egg-shaped circles. Uh, if, if you can get it up in front of you, it'll help a lot. 
and in the middle of the egg-shaped circles, towards and closest to Christ, that we have at one side, the one who's the anti-type, the substance, the fulfillment, and the, 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 the mature revelation. And at the other side we have Judaism, and we have that as a type, as a shadow, as incomplete, as elementary, the ABCs. And, and in that, under Judaism, we have the Jews. The Jews who possess their temple and their outward religion. They're persecuting, but also attractive to these discouraged professors of Christianity. But of course, they're deniers of Christ as, or I should say, they're deniers of Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God. And so there's this pull for these professing Christians, these Hebrew Christians, to go back to Judaism. Some of them are staying very close to Judaism. They're getting embroiled in the, 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 the ABCs of, of revelation. Things that were true for the Jews and they're still hanging on to them. Now, we'll see this in a minute. And, and, and so you've got this kind of circle of Christian, professing Christian. And in that mix, there are mature believers. There are those who are very close to, to the Christ side of the equation. They, they understand that he's an anti-type, that he's, that he's the substance of all the shadows of the Old Testament. They understand that he's the fulfillment of all the types and, and um, all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And they realize that the revelation that they have now is mature and it's fully grown and they're moving away from Judaism. But then there's also the immature believers. They've become dull of hearing and they're fixating on the ABCs of Judaism. And this is leading to concern, as we're going to see in a minute. So that we've kind of got a mixed crowd. The majority, he is convinced they truly have salvation. But he's worried that there are just some of them that have come so far, have come, as it were, to the edge of the land. We'll think about this in a minute. They've come to the edge of the land of, of Canaan, of Christ, if you like, and they've looked in and they've understood the reality of where they're going and they know the reality of Christianity and of Christ. And there's just a danger that with all the light they've received, they're going to turn back. They've made an intellectual ascent to Christianity. They've come across into the bracket of those who accept that Christianity is true, but they have never truly committed themselves to Christ. And there's just a danger, having come that far, that they turn around and go back to Judaism. And that's the pull. And this is what the, the writer is warning about in, in the, the five warning passages that we've spoken of through the Hebrews. Now we're going to go into one of those warning passages. He's come to speak about the, the high priesthood. We did that in the last study of the Lord Jesus and, and how he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not um, the order of Aaron. But, but a lot of the pictures of Aaron are seen in his priesthood or are seen to be fulfilled in his priesthood. But then the writer stops and he stops and he says, listen, I can't tell you anymore because there's a problem here. And he's speaking generally to them. And he says, listen, the problem is this. Verse number 11 of chapter number 5. Of whom we have much to say. Or of what of which we have much to say. And hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. 
And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and bad, or good and evil. Okay, so what are we going to speak about today? Well, this is one of the hardest sections of the New Testament to navigate. Um, it took us nearly two hours to navigate it, and it was a bit much, maybe, at the last Bible study. Uh, so my apologies for those that um, were there, that maybe it was a wee bit too much to bite off. But it, it won't honestly help if we simply scurry through this passage, or fudge it, or, or simply close our ears to what God is saying. Because if we understand it correctly, it will really help us when we get further on in the letter. The problem for the Hebrews is highlighted in this first paragraph we're going to see from 5, 11 to 14. And, and the problem is something I've termed gospel infancy. They have purportedly accepted Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. They've come into the fold of Christianity, um, but they are struggling. And, and, and instead of developing and, and progressing on their Christianity, they're stuck and they're stuck at a very early stage. We're going to look at that in a minute. It's what I'm going to call gospel infancy. But then secondly, not only the problem for the Hebrews, and we're going to come into chapter 6 and look at verse 1 to 12 here. I'm going to see the danger for the Hebrews. The danger is not so much gospel infancy. That's already a problem. The danger is possible apostasy. To turn around and go back to Judaism. It was not like they were just going to jump over into the sister religion. It's not that like they were going to just go back to their friends and family and say, well, I tried out that Christianity for a little while and it didn't work for me. No, no, to go back was to actually deny that Jesus is the Son of God. It is to say that he is not the Messiah, that he is an imposter. It's to put him on a, the cross again, as it were, for themselves. To put him in, in an open shame. And the thought of, of people having come so far, right to the very edge of the land, and turning back and going back to Judaism. Well, there's, there's going to be no hope for people like that. So that's why it will bring out the very solemn subject of possible apostasy. We'll look at that for a little while. And finally, we're going to look at um, a lovely little section. It finishes up um, the chapter 6 from 6.13 to 6.20. And this is um, what I would term um, the reason for the Hebrews to hold fast. The absolute surety of God's word. God has actually... He has demonstrated it in a remarkable way that, that his word is to be trusted. That when he makes a promise and, and he gives to these people a promise that, that if they trust in him, they'll be blessed. And, and the gospel promise that comes to us all. Um, when he makes that promise, he will see it through. And so it's really important that we get to the end of chapter 6 and see how these believers in the difficulty in which they find themselves with the tension and the pressure, the pressure of being surrounded by all the ceremony and, and their friends and their families that were still in Judaism and steeped in all the, the religion and, and all the culture and all the background and all the Old Testament rights and privileges of Judaism and the temple and all these kind of things, for them to have stepped away from that 
and to say Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. We have the anti-type. We have this one. He is not visible to us now. He's up in heaven. But we are stepping away from all that Judaism represents. We're stepping away from the altars and the smoke and the incense and stepping away from the temple and all these things. And we're, 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 we're separating ourselves from it. And, and this is really the, the, the last divorce between Christianity and Judaism. That's what's in the background here. And people are having to understand that they have to pick their sides. And to pick their side means that if they go back to Judaism, especially those ones who have come that far, who have understood that Christianity is true, they've understood that Christ is real, they've understood that he is all that they need. And they've actually assented to that mentally and publicly. But they've never exercised faith in Christ for the saving of their souls as yet. For those ones to go back is to be lost forever. So that's, that's where we're going. And I think that's, I've tried to outline it as best as I can. In, in the kind of um, overhead, I should call it overhead, uh, PowerPoint projection that I had uh, with the study, we, we just emphasized that it's really important when we come to these texts that we try to get ourselves into the mind of a reader and the writer. We're trying to get the author's intent. I mean, small a author, the writer to the Hebrews, big A author, God. W- what is God actually wanting to convey to these early Christians? It's important that we treat the text of scripture like this. We don't attempt to smuggle into the passage our thoughts and and our feelings and what where we're at that would be eisegesis we we spoke about eisegesis or but really exegesis try to take out from the passage what is actually there so let's look at these three sections for a little while together i'm not going to be able to cover maybe the depths to which we looked at these uh, but i trust that whatever we do will be a blessing to us all Now we've read this first section, the problem for the Hebrews' gospel infancy. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. Now, it doesn't really say that they just are dull of hearing. It says that they have become dull of hearing. This is something that's becoming more evident. It's getting worse. And this is why it's bothering um, the writer of the Hebrews so much. They're not listening. They're not picking up. They're not moving towards Christianity away from Judaism. They're not accepting Christ as the answer to all these types and moving away from the types to the substance in Christ. They're they're getting still attached to Judaism in some way and this is a worry to him. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. What exactly does he mean by the first principles of the oracles of God? He's kind of outlining the problem here. And what he, he does is he, he kind of, he's going to paint a picture in a minute. But, but what he means by the first principles of the oracles of God is the, the very basic principles by which you're meant to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. The oracles of God were the Old Testament scriptures that were given to the Jewish nation. It tells us in Romans chapter 3 that to them was committed the oracles of God. They, they were given the Old Testament scriptures. But they're not understanding the most basic principles about them. And the most basic principles being that they were pointing forward to the coming Messiah. 
that they were the sacrifices were pointing forward to the final sacrifice that that the priesthood was pointing forward to the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ so they they're no longer understanding that and instead of graduating from university you ought to be teachers they're actually needing to go into the kindergarten again and and, and have these very basic things taught to them you've come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is a babe now what is he speaking about this word of righteousness he's developing the picture here he uses the illustration of milk and not solid food now you think of a little baby there's a perfectly normal stage for a little baby to want milk but it's a short stage and 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 you have to move past that it's not a good thing for for a baby to still be simply on milk when it comes to a stage where they should be on solids in fact it would be a problem if you take it a few years down the line there wouldn't be proper development happening and what he's saying here is listen you, you actually need the very, very basic things about the gospel explained to you again. Um, and you're not able to actually develop and grow on that and, and find out more about Christ and the high priest and what that means and him being in the presence of God for us and, and on all these beautiful truths. You're not really getting that because you're still unskilled in the word of righteousness. The word that brings righteousness. What's that? That's a gospel. The explanation of righteousness. That we're justified by faith and not not through the deeds of the law. So they're, they're actually starting to not understand the gospel. I take it. For he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. Those who are mature. Those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and bad. So there's a real danger because they're getting all hooked up in the Old Testament and, and the Old Testament Jewish ideas about how to interpret it and so on, I take it, that, that actually they're not able to discern what's good for them and what's bad for them. Good and bad. And the contrast here is not between a, a newborn Christian and a developed Christian, really. The, the contrast is being drawn here is between Judaism and Christianity. You see, these people had come over from Judaism, but the problem is this. Yes, they'd, ex- they'd outwardly professed Christ, but they were acting as though they were still deeply attached to Judaism. And they're not able to discern how to understand the Old Testament Scripture. They're not able to understand fully the gospel message concerning Christ. So this is a major problem, the problem and the picture. We'll move on to the second section now, uh, just for the sake of time. Now, this is a bigger section. I'll break it down in a little bit more detail. But we have in this section the dangers for the Hebrews, and I've called it possible apostasy. Let's stop and think about this. We'll read the passage first of all, and then we will uh, try to break it down in more detail. Chapter 6, 1 to 12 in the New King James Version. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, the doctrines of baptism, better, the doctrines of washings, and of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal punishment or judgment. And this we will do if God permits. 
For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears fruit useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to be cursed whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labour of love, which you've showed towards his name, in that you minister to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence of the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Okay, so I've broken it into three little sections here. This whole danger business and the possible apostasy. You'll notice, first of all, verse 1 to 3, and I've called that advancement. And then a very solemn section, 4 to 8, which I've called apostasy. And then verse 9 to 12, where he speaks to them directly, the vast majority of them, he says, and he gives them some assurance. So let's think of that. Advancement, first of all. Leaving the discussion. That's the idea of leaving. In fact, it's quite a strong word. It's the idea of abandoning at times in Scripture, that word. The discussion of the elementary principles of Christ or the elementary principles of the Messiah. Let us go on to perfection, to full maturity. Okay, what is he saying here? What's actually being said? Well, actually, the Old Testament, in a sense, was the ABCs, the building blocks of what pointed towards the Messiah. The Old Testament, in that sense, was a, a picture book, a basic map that pointed towards the Messiah coming. And, and, and the, the whole Jewish faith, in that sense, that was what it was. It was laying groundwork. It was setting up pictures that pointed towards the fulfillment in Christ. So let us go on to perfection. And then he says, not laying again the foundation. In other words, Judaism, in that sense, was a foundation for Christianity, which is the more mature, the, the developed, the, the one where the Messiah has come, the one where the, the anti-type has been seen, and it just casts a light backwards all over the Old Testament and makes sense of it. So he says, don't just be going back to the foundation. And you see, the danger was here that, that they were circling around things like repentance from works that bring death. Well, that was a Jewish thought. Oh yes, of course there's repentance in Christianity too. But this was, they were just using it in a basic generic Jewish way. And a faith towards God. Well, of course we need faith towards God. But, but actually the, the gospel revelation is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fuller thing. It's, it's a deeper thing. And God has called us to his son. And the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so faith towards God could be a Jewish or a Christian idea. Again, it is still faith towards God, but, but you can see why he's saying, like, listen, you've got to move past that stage of doctrines of washing. You see, the washing was that symbolic outward washing, the cleansing from defilement, something that has found its antitype in Christianity in the sense that Christ has washed us and, and cleansed us. The doctrine of washing and of laying on of hands. Well, you remember they came with their sacrifices. They came to the altar and they laid their hand on that sacrifice. And they identified with it. 
And what was happening there? Well, though they were identifying with the substitute, and the substitute was the, was the animal that was the, the sacrifice. But of course, that's fulfilled in Christianity when someone exercises faith in Christ. And they lay their hands on Christ in that sense, and he is the sacrifice, and he is the one who has brought them uh, blessing. They have been, uh, the, the good of the cross was reckoned to them then. So, so you can see, that don't just stick on, on, on the small externals. And, and so, actually, maybe we'll stop here. There's, there's, there's this kind of emphasis in our day among certain evangelical Christians towards liturgy. And towards symbolism and icons. And people are all being, in in some ways, are drifting towards Anglicanism. Some parts of Anglicanism. Some parts of Orthodox Christianity. um, Eastern Orthodoxy. Even Catholicism. And and, and the the problem is, all this is finished. And we've moved to the anti-type. Or of of resurrection of the dead. That's just a very general idea of, of coming resurrection. Well, they can move past that because they understand so much more in, in the sense that the resurrection from among the dead and these different stages of resurrection has all been open to us in Christianity and of eternal judgment. Again, a very general concept. He's saying, listen, you've got to move past those basic Jewish elements. Not that you deny them in some kind of way, but they have their proper place. They're fitted into that proper place and, and then you move past it. And this we will do if God permits to move past and to leave that aside and to go onwards it is extremely important. This will we do. We will need God's help to do it, but we will do it. And if there's reality there, we will move away from that. That's what he's going on to say now, because he says that there's a danger that some of you will not move past it. In fact, some of you will go back to it. And that's where he comes in the next section. So that's advancement, first section. Apostasy, verse number 48. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now this is one of those great catalogues of, 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 of different words that are put together that you look at it and immediately you think, is this person saved? Is this a sense in which they can have lost their salvation? Well, he'll go down in verse number nine. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, even though we speak in this manner. So he's saying, I think the vast majority of you people, you have salvation. And the things which accompany salvation have been seen in some measure in your life. But we're just worried about some around the periphery. So he's not speaking about those who have salvation. He's speaking about those who have come to the very edge of the land. Now, I'll try to I'll illustrate this. I think it will help to some extent. You'll remember coming out of um, Egypt and coming across the Red Sea. That all those people that came out, they were... They had a special light, a special privilege. They, they, they followed the light of, of, of that, that pillar of fire by night and, and the cloud by day. They, 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 they came across and they tasted of the heavenly manna, the heavenly gift as it says here. And, and they, they, they drank deeply of that water from the rock. And they, they tasted, they understood something about the word of God when they got to um, Sinai and, and really the miracles and powers the evidence of God at work were, were seen on every side whether you think of um, the occasions where, where the, the 
the brazen serpent was put in the center of the camp, whatever it is. There were so many evidence that a miraculous work was taking place. In fact, God was carrying them almost on eagle's wings to the promised land. Their, their very shoes and their feet didn't, weren't wearing out. They were being carried along and helped along, partnering with God, as it were, in that progress towards Canaan, the place of blessing, the place where they had come to. But they came to the edge of the land and then the message came to them that there's giants in the land. You think of all that they have seen. And yet at that point, at that very point of commitment, when God said, go into the land, I'll be with you. I've been with you up to now. I will be with you. You trust me. You go into Canaan. Well, the question was for them now, these people, they'd, they'd understood and seen and been enlightened and tasted and had an appreciation and light was bathed across them like no other generation. They had a privilege that no one else ever had. They had had, had within a lifespan of them that had the Son of God walking in their streets. We'll think of these things in a wee second or two in more detail. But there they come to the edge of the land and now the choice was either they had to trust the Lord and move in. They had to, they had to trust and, and step into Christ, if you like. Just the way the people had this trust and step into Canaan. But they're just on that edge and... They know what the right thing to do is. They know what the truth of the situation is. And yet, yet, they turned back. They turned back. You remember Canaan, they turned back. They say, Let's t- we're going back to Egypt. God said, none of them are going into the land. You see, they had so much light and so much. God said, no. Joshua and Caleb can come in, but that whole generation, no. And so the parallel is here. Here they are. There's another exodus taking place out of Judaism into Christianity. God has taken these people to the very edge of the land. He showed them miraculous signs of of his his doing with these people and, and how true Christ really is. And yet there they were on the very edge of Christ, of trusting Christ. They had committed to Christ outwardly as it were but they had not actually trusted Christ as yet and so they were right on the edge and for those people with open eyes to turn away from that it was impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified for themselves who the son of God why the son of God well think of the second part of that for a minute the son of God, the Son of God. Just think of that for a second. Why is this so serious? Well, think of the enormity of the offence. You remember that occasion when the Lord Jesus told the, the, the story of the, of the wicked husband Ben casting out the nobleman's son, having a, his son, he sent him last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. Well, God, they're actually doing this against God. The God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're they're actually turning against him. They're crucifying again the Son of God. The Son of God, but as well, not only is, is this in that sense, the fact that he's dear to God, but also he's divine himself. And to go back to Judaism is to say he's an imposter. 
It's to say he's not the Christ. It's to say he's not the Son of God. It's to say he's not truly divine. And so they were purposely and actively, if they were to turn away from this light, this blazing light that they had, they were turning only towards darkness. God had given them light beyond anyone else. And God says, listen, if you go back to that, there'll be no way back. You see, Andrew, they were enlightened. Yes, they were enlightened. In fact, this very word is used of the Lord Jesus. When he comes into the world, he casts light on every man. In, in, first, in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 9, that he lights every man. So they were enlightening. They were illuminated. They, they, they saw things in the light of, of the gospel, in the light of Christ, these people. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift, I take it here, is Christ. He had come among them, just like those people had picked up the manna and known that this is the food of God. They had tasted of Christ. They had seen him in their streets. They had had Christ among them um, within their lifespan and had become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say that they're indwelt by the Spirit here. I think it's a distinction we must make. It doesn't say that they were sealed by the Spirit. It says that they partnered with the Spirit. That's, that's the way we could read this. So in a sense, the Spirit was drawing them onwards towards the truth. And they were partnering with the Spirit. I've seen this happen on occasions with people that I've spoken to. And God has opened their eyes as we're maybe doing a Bible study together. And you quite clearly can see they've been moved forward. And, and, and who is it that's doing the moving forward? That they understand something about Christ that they didn't understand before. Now... They haven't maybe committed to Christ yet, but they've been moved forward in that sense. And in that sense, I take it, they've become partners of the Holy Spirit. Have tasted a good word of God. These people had, had understood something of the truth of God from his word and have tasted it. And the powers of the age to come. That's the miracles. They had seen miracles and signs. You imagine, you, you remember what it was like in Acts um, with um, Peter and John as they, they raised that man from, from, from his lameness. And then you remember Peter, uh, anywhere where he went, the very shadow was touching um, people and they were getting healed. And it was real. There was nothing false, by the way. What we have in the kind of um, charismatic movement, particularly in the word of faith kind of movement, is, is absolutely not what we had in Acts. I couldn't emphasize it more clearly what you have today in that movement in the word of faith movement in the large part is from the pit i have no doubt whatsoever if they fall away um so so the powers of the age to come they had seen god at work in a remarkable way uh, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance now this is interesting because it says renew again to repentance so evidently there was some outward change of mind they, they had grasped they got this far that they had grasped that judaism was wrong and christianity was right and they'd made come some kind of outward movement towards christianity that's clear because they're among the the professing christians but the danger was that there would be profession among reality i mean the lord jesus taught this again and again there's no way that you're not going to have tares among the weak but there's a warning here for them the warning is this that if they are to go back this is not simply just flicking their allegiance back to judaism this is actually the end for them they're going back to perdition for the earth drinks in the rain and then he gives an illustration of this um which comes often upon it and 
and and basically the earth the, the rain comes often upon the earth and how that earth responds either it bears fruit and herbs useful for those to whom it's cultivated it, it fulfills the potential that's in it. it it fulfills the purpose of the cultivator and it receives blessing from god he says god has been cultivating you god has been blessing you he has been pouring the rain of his goodness upon you he's been showing you the truth and, and and if it bears thorns and briars well what happens to that kind of ground usually well it's just burnt up and taken away it's rejected and, and it's and it's to be burned he says listen the very same thing's true here the, all this blessing is being showered upon you light more and more light and and so on you're in the very edge and this is dangerous it's a dangerous place to be come and commit yourself truly and fully to christ if someone is listening to this podcast and you know that christianity is true you know that christ is real you've seen him change other ones in your family even as you're listening to this podcast just stop and place your confidence entirely on christ for salvation come out of that dangerous position that you might one day turn away from it and go away into darkness I think there's a sense in which this was very much, very evident in the first century. Can it happen again today? That's a good question. I, I would say just be very careful. It's not just saying that someone is a professor in Christ and then they just slip away from the profession. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that they're going back to a complete denial of all that Christ is at every level. And another thing is this. We are not the ones to tell these first century Christians very definitely had a light that was beyond um, other lights, um, those before or those after, I take it. And, and so therefore, we have to be careful about that. But what I would say is, if you turn away from the light, eventually you will be turned to dark, the darkness. How very subtle. Now let's come on to the next bit. Verse number 9 to 12. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. This is the assurance that he gives to them. He says, listen, even though we're speaking like this, we're confident that you have the real thing. He's speaking in that sense just to the possibility of the periphery, people around the periphery that, that really don't have what's real. And this kind of sluggishness has stopped him in his tracks. He says, listen, you've got to understand how serious it is to go back to Judaism. It isn't just going back to your, your father's religion. Not at all. This is serious. It's a salvation issue. That's what he's saying. For God is not unjust, he says, to forget your work of work and labour of love, which you've shown towards his name, that you minister to the saints and do minister. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. So what he's saying is, there, there's this characteristic that has marked them, which suggests to him very strongly that they are truly saved they have these signs that accompany salvation they have this this work uh, he'll remember it speaks in another place of the work of faith and the labor of love and so there's this outward uh, expression of the inward reality that he surmises and, and is really confident that that they have the real thing they they're involved in this labor of love shown towards his name you'll notice that we have love and we have hope and we have faith emphasized in these next few verses and these are of course the outward indicators of the inward reality of salvation if we don't have any of those indicators it does call these things into question and uh, we desire that each one of you he says i want this to be true of you all show the same diligence to the full assurance of 
uh, hope until the end. In other words, he wants to see that 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 real um, endurance and, and long suffering and pushing forward and holding on and hoping in Christ that he would expect to see when there's reality right to the very end of the journey. That you don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, he's lifted this idea of promises. Uh, the gospel promises are clear. You know, there's glory, there, there's, there's salvation found in Christ. I'm not going to go into all, all the details of it. But really, they, they actually spin backwards into the Abrahamic promises. The, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we're going to see next in the next section. So the danger for the Hebrews is possible apostasy let's think about the last section for a short while so section number three uh, that i've been dealing with chapter 6 verse 13 to 20 is the reason for the hebrews to hold path the absolute surety that's found in the word of god so let's read this section together for when god made a promise to abraham because he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying surely blessing i will bless you that's a hebrewism there and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, his word and his oath, some brackets there, it is impossible, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's obvious that we're getting back to the subject of Melchizedek. You remember we left it in chapter 5 and about verse 10 or so. And we're coming right back to that. So we're coming to the end of this digression, this, this parenthesis, if you like. He's coming back around to that. But what he has done is he has set out a number of things. He set out his worry, the problem of the Hebrews, this Infancy in the gospel, gospel infancy. The danger for the Hebrews is possible apostasy. And he's assured them, of course, that he thinks the vast majority of them have shown that they're real. And then he's pointed out in this next section the reason for the Hebrews to hold fast. The absolute surety that is found in the word of God. God has made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham. And this pattern of Abraham is going to come out uh, in the next couple of verses. He said, listen, holding on to the truth of God in his word is something that goes back to the very inception of Judaism. It goes back to, they don't need it just because they're no longer Jews, because they're Christians. The truths that are involved in Judaism and, and, and people like Abraham are theirs as well. And this big truth is this, that Abraham held on by faith to the promise of God and God answered his faith. So let's think about that just for a minute. God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now this is speaking generally here because the, 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 the quotation that's given to us from chapter 22 
Okay, so but the whole promise that was given to Abraham spread over a number of iterations, as you know, from Genesis chapter 12 uh, to Genesis 24 or so. But just as we're looking at that, let's get the point he's making here. He said, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And, And he swore by himself in doing it. What is God swearing by himself for? Does God need to swear by himself? No. Well, the first point he's going to make very clearly in this is that Abraham, first of all, he patiently endured. He showed his faith by patiently enduring and he obtained the promise. In other words, he he got that promise for himself, in a sense, in Isaac. He saw that to its conclusion. Now, it's not the full conclusion of the promise, as we'll see later on, but but he got the evidence of the reality of what God said. God promised him a son, and God gave him a son. Now, then he says, now listen, men swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is to them an end of all dispute. What's that mean? Well, it simply means this. And I'm quoting Woost here. Since the oath... Has this convincing power among men, God disregards the insult implied in man doubting his word and condescends to human infirmity, confirming his word with an oath. You see, what an oath was used for is that it ends disputes among people. Well, you know, you say you're going to do it, but I don't really know whether you're going to do it or not. Or tell you what, I'll swear to you, I'm going to do it. I swear by heaven or whatever. They would say something like that. And this oath in that sense, or swear by something greater than themselves, and, and this oath is to kind of firm up their word. What he says is, listen, God didn't need to do that. His word is unbreakable. But just to emphasize how absolutely sure that this is going to take place, that God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, has confirmed it by an oath. In other words, God is wanting us to really grasp this, that he will not let us down. And so he says, I swear by myself. He can't swear by anybody greater than himself. So just the way people would swear by someone greater than them, something greater than them, well, God can't do that. So he swears by himself. So his word and his oath, two immutable things, two unchanging things. God's word never changes. His oath never changes. Verse 18. In which it is therefore impossible for God to lie. We, therefore, we, the heirs of the promise, we that have trusted in the God, the, the Lord, the God of Abraham, we that have trusted in him for blessing and for salvation, we might have this strong consolation, this encouragement. After all, we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. You see this beautiful picture of, 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 of fleeing to Christ and fleeing to lay hold on the hope that we have in the promise of God as delivered in the gospel. Then he says, listen, not only do we have the pattern of Abraham and the promise assured, he says, verse 19 and 20, we have this permanent anchor. This hope, he says, we have as an anchor of the soul. We can trust implicitly in the word of the living God. The God who not only gives us word, but gives oath. 
And, and there are two things that, that just can't be broken. They're two immutable things. And therefore, we can absolutely have rock-solid hope. It's like the anchor has gone into that rock. And that rock is in the very presence of God for us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and it enters the presence behind the veil. And, and we have all the storms of life, and they had the, the, these Jews around them that were harassing them and, and, and were harming them and were pressurizing them and, and were even attractive. Their Judaism was attractive to them, and they were faced with all these circumstances and struggles throughout life. They had faced a lot. And yet now they knew this. God has said it and we believe it and nothing can stop it from happening. Where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. So not only do we have not only do we have this permanent anchor, the hope that's resting in the word of God, uh, in the presence of God, and that's where we're going to be safe one day. The forerunner has for us entered. The one who's gone before us. The one who has gone to prepare the way and he's entered for us and it's Jesus and he's our high priest he's the one who represents us he's become a high priest forever he will never let us down according to the order of Melchizedek he's a king priest he's a royal priest he's one that has an unchanging untransferable priesthood and so we can rest assured that if we have trusted in Christ for our salvation, the one who is the seed of Abraham, if we have laid hold upon him and we've therefore laid hold upon the hope of the promise of blessing in Christ, we have no way in which we'll ever be lost. May the Lord bless these considerations to you. We'll stop just by reminding ourselves of the title of the study turning away or holding on now where do we fit in that may the lord challenge your heart my heart and may we go on for his glory